you know, this is that time of year that, that lots of uh, candy is being handed out. So I want to see what kid can tell me what last week's sermon was about. And I'll give you this Reese cup here. All right? So who can tell me what last week's sermon? There's only one kid. Wow. Okay, Clayton, this is all yours. All right. We did talk some about signs. Very good. What were people doing? People saw signs and they what? Did they believe in Jesus when they saw the signs? Yeah, they did believe in Jesus. But what was the problem with that type of belief that was solely based upon signs? Was it real? No, it's the right answer. Good job. All right. Have your Reese cup there. All right, go ahead and open it up. Go ahead and open it up. I want you to enjoy that before your lunch today. All right. Okay, you're welcome. So what are you... Everything okay, Clayton? You sure everything's okay? Is there a problem with your Reese cups? It's just filled with paper. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's just, it's just got paper in it. So it looked like a Reese cup, though, didn't it? It was sealed. It would look like a Reese cup, right? But on the inside, it wasn't, was it? You see, I kind of wanted to illustrate what you learned last week. Well, hopefully we all learned last week that there is a type of faith that even on its exterior looks real, but on the inside, it's not real. It's based upon externals. It, remember last week we talked about sign-based faith or faith that, that fears man instead of fearing God. Now, Clayton, I got good news for you. I'm not that mean. I do have your Reese cups, so and now he's going like this. All right, I do have them here, but I'm going to wait and give them to you after the service so that you won't ruin your lunch. I'm not that bad of a parent either, all right? So, but don't let me forget, they're right up here, okay? So after the service, you come get them. Other kids, you leave these alone. These are Clayton's, okay? Now, what that Reese cup package, by itself, it's just a piece of trash, Matter of fact, the paper in it was just trash. I just tore up paper and put it in it this morning. Okay, it's just trash. Okay, what it needs to make it valuable is something on the inside. It needed to have something put on the inside of that package. And so as we go from John 2, verses 23 through 25, which is what we focused on last week, and into the story of Nicodemus today, we're going to see Jesus talking about how that real faith comes about. There is a false faith, there is a surface level of faith, there's a sign-based faith, a faith that fears man more than it fears God, and that's a false faith. So the question we were left with last week, just sort of left hanging with, because I mentioned that chapter 3 is really an illustration of what Jesus, what John is talking about in, in, at the end of chapter 2. The life of Nicodemus really illustrates what John's talking about. So we were left with this question, well, how does real faith come about then? That's what John chapter 3 is all about, how real faith comes about. So that's what we're going to look at today. And this passage of Scripture, this conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus, in my opinion, is one of the most important passages in all of Scripture. Not just my opinion. J.C. Ryle, the famous English preacher from the 19th century, said this. He said, The conversation between Christ and Nicodemus is one of the most important passages in the whole Bible. Nowhere else do we find stronger statements about 
those two mighty subjects, the new birth and salvation by faith in the Son of God. The servant of Christ will do well to make himself thoroughly acquainted with this chapter. I wholeheartedly agree. So we're going to dive into this chapter. And I want us to be thoroughly acquainted with it. So I can't tell you how many sermons it's going to take us to get through chapter 3. All I know is it's going to be more than one. So if you would please stand as we get ready to read God's Word. John chapter 3 beginning in verse 1. Verses 1 through 15, this is the Word of God. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe... How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, the grass withers and the flower falls. But your word remains forever. And it's based upon that confidence we have in your word. That we pray for you to speak to us this morning. We ask now you bless the reading of your word and the preaching of your word. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. The clear theme, the clear focus of this passage of scripture we read today is new birth. Being born again. You must be born again. But the question is, what does born again mean? In 1976, during the run-up to the election of 1976, there, this was um, 30, what, 36 years ago? About this time, 36 years ago, There was a fairly unknown politician making his way up the ranks who would eventually surprise everybody and become president that year, a guy by the name of Jimmy Carter. And Jimmy Carter, during the run-up to the election and in the process of being interviewed and stuff, told people that he was a born-again Christian. Now, I wasn't aware until researching some of this that really up until that point, at least in mainstream America, this concept of born-again was sort of, what? 
People hadn't heard of that before, born again. But Jimmy Carter said, I'm a, I'm a born again Christian. And that created a lot of buzz. People want to know, what was this born again Christian? But it also became a slogan of sorts. Matter of fact, the term sort of got hijacked. It became sort of a marketing slogan. It, it, it meant a lot of things. An athlete, perhaps, who had a bad season last season and made a comeback this season, people referred to him as being born again this year. Um, some people, and even some love songs, to talk about finding love and feeling like they're born again. Uh, some used it to refer to perhaps like a, a, a company or a, um, uh, some sort of a yeah, company or brand that, that kind of resurfaced, rebranded itself and was born again. And even during this election cycle, the term has been used to refer to a politician whose campaign seemed to be off track until a certain debate. And all of a sudden they said, well, his campaign's been born again. And so the phrase is sort of used, it's been hijacked by popular culture, and, and people don't really know what it means, born again. But even within Christian circles, I, I contend that people don't understand what born again is a lot of times. Matter of fact, some people refer to it as a category of Christians. I was listening to a radio talk show, a Christian radio talk show, and it was mainly Christians calling into this talk show. And one lady called in and said, yeah, I'm a Christian, but you know what? I, I just don't like those born-again Christians. And actually, I think she said born-againers was the phrase she used. And I just thought that was weird. And because in reality, born-again Christian is just a redundant phrase. You can't be a Christian and not be born-again. And if you are a Christian, then you've been born-again. So I know there's lots of people out there throwing different categories, mainline Christians, evangelical Christians, uh, Catholic Christians, Roman Catholic Christians, whatever. And they throw all these different phrases out there. But when it comes to being born again, you are not a Christian if it hasn't happened. But even within our evangelical circles, even within those who would have somewhat of an understanding of what it means to be born again, there's a lot of confusion. Um, Barna Research Group does a lot of research for the church. They, they, um, they do lots of statistics and stuff that pastors like to repeat on Sunday mornings. Okay, Maybe no one else pays attention to them, but, but Barna Research bases their definition of born again. This is their definition of born again. So when they go out and they research and ask people in churches questions, this is what they mean by born again. Christian, they said born again Christians are people who say they've made a personal commitment to Christ and believe they are going to heaven based upon that commitment. Now, a lot of people in the church might have a similar definition. But that's a woefully inadequate definition. It's not totally wrong, it's just inadequate. We don't understand new birth from that definition. We, we can't understand new birth from that definition. I, like I said, I think the average churchgoer will give you something similar. Now, it's certainly true that Jesus is our Savior and that he saves sinners on a personal level. However, if this is all that we think the new birth is, then it's no wonder there's issues in the church. Let me just illustrate it for you. That's Barna's definition for born again. Okay? Someone, you make a commitment to Christ, and based upon that commitment, I'm going to heaven. Well, they did research, a statistic that, that pastors love to, to repeat, and showed that, well, the divorce rate in the church is high, as high as or, if, or higher than the divorce rate for those outside the church. You hear that statistic a lot. Probably y'all have heard it, even from the pulpit. Well, the divorce rate in the church is as high as it is outside the church. Well, 
Someone recently went in and, and, and analyzed those statistics a little bit more and, and discovered that, well, when you break it down, that's just people who say they're born again, according to Barna's definition. Okay, I made a commitment to Christ, and I believe I'm going to heaven based upon that commitment. Well, they went in and analyzed it a little bit more and, and broke it down to those who were not only had given this definition of born again, but also said they were committed to a local body. They had joined and were committed to a local body of believers. In other words, they were regular church attenders, but more than that, they were members of a local church. The statistic came down to around 35%. So now only 35% of those in the church, the divorce rate's the same as outside the church. But then the research went a little bit deeper and said, all right, we're going to go, we're going to dig even deeper. And they discovered that those within that group who um, were regular church attenders, but more than that, were in churches that practiced, that took a high, very high view of God's word, that preached God's word unapologetically, that preached God's word exegetically, that was also a church that had high rates of discipleship, lots of discipleship going on. The divorce rate in those churches is only 15% compared to the rest of the world. You see, I think we have a woefully inadequate understanding of what it means to be born again. And our churches are filled with people who think they are, but they're not really. They haven't really been born again. Yeah, they made some sort of commitment. They checked off a box. They prayed a prayer. They shook a hand. They did something. And the reason I say that is because they're not living any different than the world's living. Because we'll get to it, not today, we'll get to it. We'll talk about how the new birth actually causes you to live differently. The whole, the book of 1 John is just filled with this. We're going to go to 1 John and just hear it over and over and over again. That if you've truly been born again, then you, you're separate from the world and you live differently. And so the fact that the divorce rate's the same as in the church, that tells me something about this group over here that says that they're born again that there's a large portion of them that aren't. So being born again is Jesus' focus here in this conversation with Nicodemus. Five times in the span of six verses. Verse 3, he says, born again. Verse 5, he talks about being born of water and the Spirit. Verse verse 6, born of the Spirit. Verse 7, born again. Verse 8, born of the Spirit. So clearly, he's teaching Nicodemus that the source of this true faith that he lacks up to this point is the new birth. Scripture uses other synonymous phrases like being made alive, being made alive in Christ, or being a new creation, or even the word regeneration. Thus, we refer to being born again and the teaching of being born again as the doctrine of regeneration. But what is it? What is regeneration? What is new birth? Let me just give you a simple definition. And you can find different definitions out here, but most biblical definitions are similar to this. Regeneration, or being born again, is a secret act of God whereby the sinner is given a new heart, being brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. It's quite different from, oh, I made a commitment to Christ. Regeneration, or being born again, is a secret act of God whereby He comes in and gives the sinner a new heart. And the sinner is brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. Okay, so if we go back to our Reese's illustration, it has nothing in it to make it valuable, to make it, make it valuable, to make it worth what Clayton would like for it to be. Something's got to be put into it by an outside force. The Reese's cup can't do it itself. 
And this is what was prophesied in the Old Testament in Ezekiel 11 and also Ezekiel 36. Matter of fact, let me read verse 25 of chapter 36 in the following verses. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your unrighteousness. Now, who's doing all the work here? I want you to listen. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In verse 5, where Jesus speaks of being born of the water and of spirit, he's referring back to Ezekiel here. It's a work of God. It involves a complete renovation of a dead heart. And it produces the fruit of a life dedicated to God. We cannot take any credit for it. It cannot be made to happen by our strength, by our intellect. It cannot be generated by some emotional experience. It's from God. It's by God. It's for God. Just as you physically cannot be born of your own efforts, so too regeneration or being born again is a work of God that he gets all the credit for. At its core, being born again is not an improvement of your human nature, but the creation of a new nature. It's not moral reformation, but supernatural recreation. It's not turning over a new leaf, but it's the receiving of a new life. You see, I think a lot of people think that that's what it means to be born again. Turn over a new leaf. I'm making a new commitment. That's insufficient. It's receiving a new life. A new life that can now exercise saving faith. A new life that now hates and turns from sin. A new life that can now see spiritual truths. A new life that can now obey the commands of God from the heart. A new life that now desires the things of God, including God's word. A new life that is now united to Christ and is now continually and steadily being made and transformed into the image of Christ by the indwelling spirit of God. That's what happens in new birth. Now, Nicodemus here, like many religious churchgoers today, maybe many who answered Barna's questions, just doesn't get it. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Jesus calls him here in this passage, the teacher of Israel. So he's very religious. He was a prominent political figure and religious figure of his day. But for all of his power and all of his knowledge, he didn't get it. So Jesus walks him through being born again with today's passage. So let's walk with him. So I want us to answer some questions here. Hopefully we'll answer these questions over the next couple of sermons. I don't know how long it'll take. Lord willing, we'll be able to answer these here in the next few sermons. First question. Why do we need new birth? We're going to focus almost exclusively on that today. Why do we need new birth? Number two, where does new birth come from? Why do we need it? Where does it come from? Number three, how do we receive new birth? Why do we need it? Where does it come from? How do we receive it? And finally, what is the outcome of new birth? What's the outcome of it? These are all answered here in this conversation with Nicodemus. So first, let us recognize this truth. So we're going to answer that first question, and I'm going to give you this statement to bring up here on the screen. All men are in desperate need of new birth because all men are depraved sinners. All men are in desperate need of new birth because all men are depraved 
sinners. Jesus makes it so clear that there is a tremendous need for people to be born again. Okay, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Then in verse 5, unless one is born again, born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 7, you must be born again. So unless, unless, you must. Jesus doesn't say, you know, you'd have a better chance if you'd just be born again. He doesn't say, you know, life would be better if you would just consider being born again. No, he says, you must be born again. Just as you must breathe in order to live. You don't wake up in the morning and say, you know, I wonder if I should breathe today. You have to breathe or you're dead. So too, you have to be born again or you're dead. There's no spiritual life in you. This is what makes the Christian message so unpopular today. We live in a culture that abhors absolutes. Don't give me absolutes, especially when it comes to morality and truth. This is a culture that loves to imagine that everything's just subjective. You can just sort of interpret things how you want to interpret. So this isn't a popular message today. But Jesus says you must. You must be born again to do what? To see the kingdom of heaven and to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then for the rest of this passage, Jesus speaks about having eternal life. So we can I think we can deduce from that that he's referring to the same thing. Eternal life is seeing the kingdom of heaven and entering into the kingdom of heaven. Now when he says kingdom, this would have gotten Nicodemus' attention. After all, Nicodemus was just like every other Jew. He was expecting the Messiah to be this military and political leader who would just roll into town take care of the Roman situation they're dealing with, and set up a geopolitical theocracy, the kingdom of God. That's what they were expecting to see happen. And so Nicodemus sees signs. He sees Jesus performing miracles, spectacular signs. He's, aha. So so he comes to him. says, we know that you're a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And basically by saying that, he's asking him, so are Are you the Messiah? You're doing all these spectacular signs. So are you the Messiah? Are you the one who's going to, you know, get these Romans out? Set up this great kingdom that we're looking forward to? And so Jesus rocks his world by saying something about the kingdom that Nicodemus could never have imagined. Jesus gives a prerequisite to entering the kingdom and seeing the kingdom of God. And it wasn't being born of Jewish descent, which is what Nicodemus would have thought. Well, I'm a good Jew. I can't wait to be part of this kingdom. And Jesus says, it's not about your Jewish descent, teacher of Israel. It's about being born again. You must be born anew. Without it, no kingdom. My friends, without new birth, there is no hope of seeing the kingdom or entering the kingdom or living eternally with the king. Saying, I made a commitment to Christ, anyone can say. But those who are entering the kingdom are those who have been born anew. Which a commitment to Christ certainly follows that. Born again. You must be born again. Now like all sinners, Nicodemus confused two realms here. The spiritual and the natural. 
Just as he imagined that Jesus was going to set up an immediate physical kingdom right there, so too he thinks that Jesus is speaking physically here and, you know, says this comment, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He didn't have spiritual eyes to see spiritual truth. Instead, the eyes of his flesh were blinding him from seeing. So Jesus gets more specific. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Immediately, Nicodemus should have heard Ezekiel 36, 25. When Jesus says this, but he doesn't. I think eventually he does, but right then he doesn't. He should have known this. He was a teacher of Israel. But he doesn't see it. Now, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. We'll talk about how new birth comes from the Spirit. We'll touch on it at the very end of the, text, of the message today and hop into it next week. So I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. Again, I want, to, I want to come back to the necessity of the new birth. Let's focus on the necessity, on our statement here. All men are in desperate need of new birth because all men are depraved sinners. New birth is a radical remedy. Why such a radical remedy to enter the kingdom of heaven and to see the kingdom of heaven? Why? Well, you see, the remedy gives us an idea of how bad the condition is. So let me borrow an illustration that I heard someone else use. So let's say I go into the doctor because I've got sore, a sore on my ankle. And I do. I have, I have ankle. My ankles hurt all the time. So let's say I go in for my, my sore ankles. And I go into the doctor. And he looks at my sore ankles, examines it, and he leaves. And he comes back and he tells me, we're going to have to amputate your leg from the knee down. The remedy gives me an idea without him having to say anything else that the condition is a lot worse than I thought it was. It's not just a sore. I've got something seriously wrong if he's going to amputate my legs. And so the remedy, new birth, recreation, points to how bad the condition is. And that's what's so important here for us to understand. We need to be radically and unequivocally transformed. Remember those words from last week where John said that Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man? Well, Jesus, the great physician of the soul, knows all things about all men, and Jesus knows that all men are sinners falling short of the glory of God. Thus, they are not in need of moral transformation. They are in need of spiritual resuscitation. You're not just in need of fixing up your morals. You gotta, gotta do life better. You gotta treat your wife better. You gotta treat your kids better. You gotta do things better. You're not in need of that. If you're lost today, that's not what you need. You need to be born again. Moral transformation won't get you anywhere. You have to be totally resuscitated. And born again. So let's talk about some reasons. So this is the doctor, the great physician, Jesus. Okay? First of all, the word of Christ diagnoses all men as disobedient. So first thing I'm going to bring up is that all men are born disobedient to God. Romans 3. As it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. 
No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have, known, they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And this text isn't talking about terrorists. This text is talking about every single human who's ever lived. You and me. Because right after this he says in verse 23, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All men are rebellious and disobedient against their rightful king, against their Lord. Ouch, doctor. That's pretty serious. I didn't know the condition was that bad. Well, it is that bad, but I got news for you, it's worse. Because we're blinded by our sin, and the next thing I want us to see is that all men (coughs) are born in spiritual darkness. Not only are all men disobedient, born with disobedient hearts, we're born spiritually darkened. Ephesians 4, 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. Because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. Due to their hardness of heart. They are darkened. So man is really sick. The diagnosis is bad. For we're not only disobedient. And we're not only in darkness. You see, the diagnosis gets worse. All men are born under the dominion of Satan. And sin. All men are born under the dominion of sin and Satan. 2 Timothy 2.26. In this passage here, Paul is encouraging young Pastor Timothy to correct his opponents with gentleness so that they might hear the gospel and believe. And he goes on to say this about them. That they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The diagnosis from the doctor is not only that we're disobedient and darkened, we are under the dominion of Satan and of sin. Romans 6, 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So there is this condition that all men find themselves enslaved to sin and to Satan. And Paul here praises God for setting the people in the church, those who've been born again, free. So we've got this bad diagnosis. The doctor has come in. The word of Christ has spoken. We're disobedient. We're darkened. We're under the dominion of sin and Satan. But it gets worse. Because all men are born dead in their trespasses. Dead. Of all the ways that Paul likes to explain the sinful condition, this is the most clear one. Because dead is dead. That animal on the side of the road that got hit by a truck, isn't getting back up and running away. It's dead. Spiritual death 
is the most stunning picture that Paul paints for those, for all men. Ephesians 2, 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The remedy, friends, total rebirth is extreme because the condition is dire. The remedy is extreme because the condition is dire. The world would have you believe that the condition isn't that bad. That, that man is essentially good. That each and every man has a certain amount of goodness in them. And, the, and if they just pull themselves up by their spiritual bootstraps, we can all do enough good to, to benefit fellow man and also to, to be on God's good side. And therefore, when our time does come, that we're going to be okay. That's what the world would teach you. And even in the church, I'm afraid, there's teaching circulating that, you know, man's condition isn't really all that bad. If we can just do the right things, say the right things, God can somehow work with us, partner with us. You know, I provide half the CPR and he provides the other half and I'm alive. No, you're dead. You're a corpse. Lift the arm, it falls. Spiritually dead. You need an outside source to do an inward work to make you alive so that you can even begin to want God and serve God. Until you can come to that realization, you don't understand how dire your condition is. Until you come to the realization that you are dead, you don't understand how dire your situation is, and you'll always be robbing a little bit of glory from God. Just a little bit here or there. Paul continues in Ephesians 2. But God. Remember, we're dead. Now the outside source comes in in verse 4. But God, being rich in his mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that not one single person on this planet can boast. No one. Spiritually dead. As Paul makes clear, my friends, this is not a remedy that we can make happen. We've got to get that. We must get that new birth is spiritual in nature and comes from the Spirit of God. And God's Spirit is free. God's Spirit is sovereign. And it is the agent of new birth. Verse 5, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, we read this before, but I'm going to read it again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. And then there's verse 8, and this is so key to this passage. We're not going to dig into it today. 
But this is key to this passage. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And many today, like good old religious Nicodemus, don't get this. And it can't be gotten unless it's spiritually discerned, unless God opens spiritual eyes. 1 Corinthians 2, 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, I believe that passage speaks more than just about the gospel. Certainly the gospel can't be discerned. <coughs> That's the main point of that passage, without, without the Spirit at work. But I think even after we're believers... And we continue to walk through God's word. And we continue to grow in our faith. And we continue to run into great mysteries of the scripture. And great tensions in the scripture. Where our faith is tested to the max. Those things can only be spiritually discerned. And so we must fall on our face and say, God, my little brain can't grasp this. So I beg you for the mercy to cause in me a faith in your transcendent nature. I want to believe these truths. And they become spiritually discerned. Romans 8, 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are the flesh cannot please God. This teaching of the the deadness of man and the depravity of man, this isn't something that's been conjured up by some sort of resurgence in Reformed theology within the last, oh, 20 years here in America. 495 years ago, this Wednesday, Martin Luther posted 95 theses on the door of a church in Wittenberg, Germany. And the Protestant Reformation exploded into existence. It exploded into existence because there was a church that was politically and spiritually corrupted. And they had taken the gospel and they had corrupted it and they had made it into a thing of works. You could buy your way into heaven so long as you have enough money. And it it was kind of a double-edged sword for the Roman Catholic Church because we could build a basilica if people pay us, plus they can get out of purgatory. And it it was hellish to the core. So Martin Luther, along with a lot of other brave people that put their life on the line for these doctrines, stood out and said, no, that's not what the Scriptures teach. So Martin Luther's just one along a long line, and even those before Martin Luther, like Augustine and brave people within the church, even after it had gotten corrupted, believed the Scriptures. Martin Luther said this. This is Martin Luther's words. Every Baptist church, every church that we call Protestant, sprung out of this movement. You can see how far some have gone from it, but listen to what Martin Luther says. As long as a man is persuaded that he can make even the smallest contribution to his salvation, he remains self-confident and does not utterly despair of himself, and so is not humbled before God. So a man plans out for himself a position, an occasion, a work, which shall bring him final salvation, but which will not. We have to understand how dire our situation is. Martin Luther got it. Swingley got it. Calvin got it. And the torch has been passed and passed and passed. And every single generation is tempted to go back to where Rome went. 
and say, no, 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 no. You're good enough so long as you do some stuff. No. You're dead, friends, without Christ. All men are in desperate need of new birth because all men are depraved sinners. Therefore, this will be our focus next week. Therefore, the source of sinners' new birth is the work of the Spirit of God received by faith in the work of the Son of Man. That's a little bit of a complicated sentence. We're going to focus on it next week because it's here in the text. The source of a sinner's new birth is the work of the Spirit of God received by faith in the work of the Son of Man. But we'll get there next week. For now, let me read (coughs) Titus. Titus 3, starting in verse 3, and we'll bring this sermon in for a landing. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. How beautiful the doctrine is when we really, really embrace it. But what must I do, though? You're here this morning and you're desperate now. You've heard your condition. Doc, what must I do? Well, I don't want to just leave you hanging. And you don't have to have a full-orbed 30-page thesis on the doctrine of regeneration in order to be saved. Let me tell you this morning. We'll explain it more next week. Turn to Jesus and believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus because you are helpless in and of yourself. There is nothing you can do. You are in desperate need of a Savior. You are utterly sinful. You are depraved to the core and you need to be born again. We'll talk more about the details of how all that works out next week. But for right now, simply believe. The scriptures say, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that he is Lord and that God raised him from the dead... According to Romans 10, you will be saved. My friends, don't sit here and worry. If you've truly placed real faith, not the fake faith, real faith in Jesus Christ, then you have been born again. So come. I call on the name of the Lord Jesus this morning. Let me just take John's words. John 1. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So come. Receive him. Call upon his name. Become a child of God. And if it happens, well, we praise God because verse 13 of John chapter 1 says this. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So you come and you truly repent and you turn to the Lord Jesus and you call upon his name and put all your hope in him. Then we praise God. We're not giving you any credit. He caused new life in you. So come, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus this morning. If you haven't already. So prayerfully and hopefully, Lord willing, we'll dig more into this next week. Into some of the deep mysteries of regeneration. 
And I pray that God will give us hearts of faith to believe what the scriptures say about regeneration. But for right now, let's close our eyes, let's bow our heads, and close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I ask that you do two things this morning. If there be anybody in here who, through the preaching of the word, not, not, not my delivery of the word, but through the, through the word itself, it has been revealed that they have a heart that is dead. I ask you, Lord, for your spirit to move and bring that heart alive and that they would confess you as Lord, confess Jesus as Lord and believe. If their heart, if their life has been the Reese's package, they've got the word Christian written across them and no one can see inside. All outward evidences look like they're a Christian. Lord, if there be anyone here who the inside is just filled with trash, It hasn't been reborn, and the sweet glory of new birth hasn't been put in them. And I pray, Lord, that your Spirit would do that work today. And Lord, my second request this morning is that for those of us who are believers, oh Lord, perhaps we've been feasting on a happy meal understanding of regeneration. When we need a thick old steak. That you give us an appetite to really embrace what the scriptures say about new birth. And that in doing so, we will just burst into doxology and praise because of who you are and what you've done. It gets me excited when I think about these things. And so God, I pray that you just stir up that joy in us. Stir up that, that praise you only deserve. So God, now we close this time with the singing and the responding with offerings and the responding with our prayer requests. And Lord, we close this time and we ask, Lord, that you'd just continually keep our hearts focused on you. Remind us, Lord, of the grace that comes through Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.